Hello, my name is Trent Miley, and I will be guiding you on a journey. Throughout this show, I will be dramatically reading text, monologues, and original work, and sometimes will be joined by my friends, colleagues, and mentors to aid me as your guide. Walking into a theater, we are transported to a world unlike our own. As a performer, I create a universe for you to explore all the sights, sounds, and occasional smells. As an audience member, I sit back and allow myself to be transported along on the journey. Riverside Readings is designed to allow you to enter a world unlike ours, and afterwards, awards an explanation of the journey we undertook together. So come along with me as we discover what lies ahead on Riverside Readings, a dramatic reading radio show hosted by me, Trent Miley. Today, I am joined by my friend, Will Bradley. Before we begin, Will, is there anything you would like to say? Hello. Uh, yes. Trent, that was a beautiful existential journey that you took us on to get us in the right headspace of what Riverside Readings is all about. Thank you. I feel prepared for this now. At first, <laughs> I was nervous, but now I'm like, yes, this is the journey. This is what it's all about. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's all stress-free. We are world-building as we are reading. And today, we will be reading Red by John Logan and True West by Sam Shepard. My characters are Ken and Lee. In Red, my character will be the legendary painter Mark Rothko, and in True West, I'll be playing Austin, the screenwriter. Very exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> and without further ado, here is Red by John Logan. The setting of Red is in Rothko's studio, located in New York City, circa 1958 to 59. Rothko's studio is an old gymnasium. The hardwood floor is splattered and stained with hues of dark red paint. There is a cluttered counter or tables filled with buckets of paint, tins of turpentine, tubes of glue, crates of eggs, bottles of scotch, packets of pigment, coffee cans filled with brushes, a portable burner or stovetop, and a phone. There is also a phonograph with messy stacks of records. There is one door leading to an unseen vestibule where the characters change into their work clothes and enter and exit the studio. Most importantly, representations of some of Rothko's magnificent Seagram mural paintings are stacked and displayed around the room. Rothko had a pulley system that could raise, lower, and display several of the paintings simultaneously. The paintings could be repositioned throughout the play, with a different arrangement for each scene. There is also an imaginary painting hanging 
right in front of the audience, which Rothko studies throughout the play. Scene 4. Ken is alone, building a wooden canvas stretcher frame. He is a good carpenter. A Chet Baker jazz record plays on the phonograph. He works quietly. Then the sound of a slamming door from outside surprises him. They're trying to kill me. I swear to God they're trying to kill me. Those prosaic insects. Those presumptuous counter-jumping rascallions. These are the same goddamn walls where I hang. You appreciate that? My gallery, my walls, polluted now beyond sanitation, beyond hygiene, like the East River, choked with garbage, all that superficial, meaningless sewage right up there on the wall. The same sacred place of de Kooning and Motherwell and Smith and Newman and Pollock and... What is this music? Chet Baker. Oh, just my thought this day couldn't get any worse. It's jazz. Like I care. When you pay the rent, you can pick the records. So, how did you like the exhibit? These young artists are out to murder me. That's kind of extreme. But not inaccurate. You think Jasper Johns is trying to murder you? Yes. What about Frank Stella? Yes. Robert Rauschenberg? Yes. Roy Lichtenstein? Yes. Andy Warhol? You sound like an old man. I am an old man. Not that old. Today I'm old. If you say so. My point is, people like me, my contemporaries, my colleagues, those painters who came up with me... We all had one thing in common. We understood the importance of seriousness. You're too much. What? You heard me. What did you just say to me? Who are you to assume they're not serious? Look at their work. Not like you usually look at things like an overeager undergraduate. I have. Then what do you see? Never mind. No, you look at them. What do you see? This moment. Right now. In all those flags and comic books and soup cans. This moment. Right now. In a little bit tomorrow. And you think that's good? It's neither good nor bad. But it's what people want. Exactly my point. So art shouldn't be popular at all now? It shouldn't only be popular. You may not like it, but nowadays as many people are genuinely moved by Frank Stella as by Mark Rothko. That's nonsense. Don't think so. You know the problem with those painters is exactly what you said. They are painting for the moment right now, and that's all. It's nothing but sidegeist art. Completely temporal... Completely disposable, like Kleenex, like... Like Campbell's Soup. Like comic books. You really think that Andy Warhol will be hanging in the museums in a hundred years, alongside the Brugels and the Vermeers? Because those goddamn galleries will do anything for money and cater to those wicked tastes. That's business, young man, not art. You ever get tired of telling people what art is? No, not ever. Until they listen. Better you should tell me. Screw off. You're just mad. 
because the barbarians are at the gate. And what do you know? People seem to like the barbarians. Of course they like them. That's the goddamn point. You know what people like? Happy, bright colors. They want to be pretty. They want things to be beautiful. Jesus Christ. When someone tells me one of my pictures is beautiful, I want to vomit. What's wrong with that? Pretty, beautiful, nice, fine. That's our life now. Everything's fine. We put on the funny nose and the glasses and slip on the banana peel. And the TV makes everything happy and everything's laughing all the time. And it's all so goddamn funny. It's our constitutional right to be amused all the time, isn't it? We're all a smirking nation living under the tyranny of fine. How are you? Fine. How was your day? Fine. How are you feeling? Fine. How did you like the painting? Fine. Want some dinner? Fine. Well, let me tell you, everything is not fine. How are you? How was your day? How are you feeling? Conflicted. Nuanced. Troubled. Diseased. Doomed. I am not fine. We are not fine. We are anything but fine. Look at these pictures. Look at them! You see the dark rectangle like a doorway, an aperture, yes. But it's also a gaping mouth letting out a silent howl of something feral. And he's hanging alongside Rothko, now foul and primal and real. Not nice, not fine, real. A moan of rapture, something divine or damned. Something immortal, not comic books or soup cans. Something beyond me and beyond now. And whatever it is, it's not pretty and it's not fine. I am here to stop your heart! You understand that? I'm here to make you think! I am not here to make pretty pictures! So said the cubist, the second before you stomped him to death. Tragic, really, to grow superfluous in your own lifetime, right? The child must banish the father. Respect him, but kill him. Isn't that what you said? You guys went after the cubist and surrealist and boy. Did you love it? And now your time has come and you don't want to go? <laughs> well, exit stage left, Rothko, because pop art has banished abstract expressionism. I only pray to God that they have more generosity of spirit than you do and allow you some dignity as you go. Consider the last gasp of a dying race. Futility. Don't worry. You can always sign menus for money. How dare you? Do you know where I live? No. Uptown. Downtown. Brooklyn. No. You know if I'm married. What? Do you know if I'm married, dating, gay, anything? No. Why should I... Two years. I've been working here. Eight hours a day. Five days a week. And you know nothing about me. You ever once asked me to dinner... Maybe come to your house? What is this? You know I'm a painter, don't you? I suppose. No. Answer me. Do you know 
I'm a painter. Yes. Have you ever once asked to look at my work? Why should I? Why should you? You're an employee. This is about me. Everything here is about me. You don't like that? Leave. Is that what this is all about? Baby feels wounded. Daddy didn't pat him on the head. Mommy didn't hug you today. Stop it. Don't blame me. I didn't kill him. Go find a psychiatrist and quit whining to me about it. Your neediness bores me. Bores you? (laughs) Bores you. Christ Almighty, try working for you for a living. The talking, 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 Jesus Christ, wanting ever shut up, titanic self-absorption of the man. You stand there, trying to look so deep when you're nothing but a solipsistic bully with your grandiose self-importance and lectures and arias, and let's look at the canvas for another few weeks. Let's not paint. Let's just look. And the pretension, Jesus Christ, the pretension, I can't imagine any other painter in the history of art ever tried so hard to be significant. You know, not everything has to be so goddamn important all the time. Not every painting has to rip your guts out and expose your soul. Not everyone wants art that actually hurts. Sometimes you just want a still life or landscape or soup can or comic book, which you might learn if you actually left your goddamn hermetically sealed submarine here with all the windows closed and no natural light because natural light isn't good enough for you. Then, nothing's ever good enough for you. Not even the people who buy your pictures. Museums are nothing but mausoleums. Galleries are run by pimps and swindlers. And art collectors are nothing but shallow social climbers. So who is good enough to own your art? Anyone? (laughs) Or maybe the real question is, who's good enough to even see your art? Is it just possible no one's worthy to look at your paintings? Huh. That's it, isn't it? We all have been weighed in the balance and have been found. Wanting, you say, you spend your life in search of real human beings. People who can look at your pictures with compassion. But in your heart, you no longer believe those people exist. So you lose faith. So you lose hope. So black swallows red. My friend, I don't think you'd recognize a real human being if he were standing right in front of you. Never mind. Oh, don't give up so easy. It's not a game. You do make one salient point, though not the one you think. Naturally. I do get depressed when I think how people are going to see my pictures. 
if they're going to be unkind. Selling a picture is like sending a blind child into a room full of razor blades. It's going to get hurt, and it's never been hurt before. It doesn't know what hurt is. That's why I'm looking to do something different with these ones. They're less vulnerable somehow, more robust. Some hues from the earth give give them strength, and they're not alone. They're a series, and they'll always have each other for companionship and protection. Most importantly, they're going into a place created specifically for them. A place of reflection and safety and... A place of contemplation. Yes. A place with no distractions. Yes. A sacred place. Yes. A chapel. Yes. Like the Four Seasons Restaurant. At least Andy Warhol gets the joke. No, you don't understand. It's... It's a fancy restaurant in a big high-rise owned by a rich corporation. What don't I understand? You don't understand my intention. Your intention is immaterial. Unless you're going to stand there for the rest of your life next to the pictures giving lectures, which you'd probably enjoy, the art has to speak for itself, yes? Yes, but... Just admit your hypocrisy. The high priest of modern art is painting a wall in the temple of consumption. You rail against commercialism in art, but pal, you're taking the money. I... Sure. You, you can try to kid yourself. You're making a holy place of contemplated of all. But in reality, you're just decorating another dining room for the super rich in these things? Oh, are nothing but the world's most expensive overmantles. Why do you think I took this commission? It appealed to your vanity. How so? They could have gone to Dekuing. They went to you. It's the flashiest mural commissioned since the Sistine Chapel. You would have turned it down? In a second. Easy for you to say. You know what it is? It's your Oldsmobile convertible. Come on. You don't need the money. You don't need the publicity. Why make yourself a hypocrite for the Seagram Corporation? I didn't enter into this capriciously, you know. I thought about it. No kidding. And of course, it appealed to my vanity. I'm a human being, too. But still, I, I hesitated. Very same thoughts. Is it corrupt? Is it immoral? Just feeding the whims of the bourgeoisie. Should I do it? I'm still thinking what the murals might look like when I take a trip to Europe. I happen to go to Michelangelo's Medici Library in Florence. You been there? No. When you go, be sure to find the staircase. It's hidden away. Tiny vestibule, like a vault. It's so cramped, but it goes up for three stories. Michelangelo embraced this claustrophobia and created false doors and windows all the way up the walls, rectangles and rich reds and browns. Well, that was it. He achieved just the kind of feeling I was after for the Four Seasons. He makes the viewer feel he is trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up, so all he can do is butt his head against the wall forever. 
I know that this place is where the richest bastards in New York will come to feed and show off. And I hope to ruin the appetite of every person who eats there. You mentioned this to the Seagram's people? It would be a compliment if they turned down the murals. They won't. You want a drink? Huh. Sure. I don't know. About what? Them. This malicious intent of yours. The old lion still roaring, still trying to provoke, to be relevant. Stick it to the bourgeoisie. It doesn't scan. Too romantic for you? No. Too cruel for them. Your paintings aren't weapons. You would never do that to them. Never produced them like that. Maybe you started the commission thinking that way, but... Then art happened. You couldn't help it. That's what you do. So now you're stuck. You've painted yourself into a corner. You should forgive the expression. No. No, you're wrong. Their their power will transcend the setting. Working together, moving in rhythm, whispering to each other, they will still create a place. You think I'm kidding myself. You think it's all an act of monumental self-delusion. Answer me! Answer me. Yes. I'm fired, aren't I? Fired? This is the first time you've ever existed. See you tomorrow. So, Will, we just read Red by John Logan. Yes, we did. And to me, that was really one of the first times I've actually sat down and read through a section of Red um, in a dramatic sense. Like, yes, there could have been times where I would have been sitting in my car or listening to it through like an audiobook kind of setting, but not really like understanding the words that might have been said or the moments that are within it. But you have shared with me that you have a better understanding than just the cover understanding that I basically have. Uh, at least I have surface level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, about five years ago, um, my first production at Columbus State University was a production of Red. Mm-hmm. And I played Ken. And um, I had no knowledge of Rothko or abstract expressionism or really anything about art in general. Like I, I am not an artist in that way. Uh That's just not my thing. (laughs) I am terrible at drawing and anything. I know it sounds, it's limiting saying drawing, but I'm just not very well versed in art. And, um, I had to quickly learn. I learned how to make a canvas, which was actually really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, but learning about Mark Rothko, um, the Seagram's paintings, that these were actual commission that he was paid to do. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened the way they talk about it in the script. And now Ken's not 
a real person. It's based off of probably oh, wow. a lot of different mentors or uh, mentorees that um, Mark Rothko mentored. Um, but basically, uh, three years, um, he worked on these Seagram's paintings. And like they talk about, you know, you look at the art, we sit here and look at the canvas for weeks and we mm-hmm. don't ever paint anything. Yeah. It's almost like he was getting up the nerve to do commercialism. I mean, sincerely, yeah, yeah that's exactly what it was. I mean, I he was paid. I forget ex- the exact amount. It was something outrageous during the time. It was like in the in the sixties, and no, this would be the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, probably like five million dollars during oh, that wow. time. And so he was preparing them, and he had never done anything like that before. Mm-hmm. And he had plenty of money. I mean, he always had his stuff in galleries, uh, and he always got commissions to do it for certain types of people. He would push away people um, and um, only do certain commissions. So when he took on the Seagram's paintings, it's strange because that's exactly the people he was not uh, tending to. He didn't want to yeah. have art for rich people. He didn't yeah. see the... He didn't see that they ever really hurt like he did. He was a very uh, prolific person, and he had a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was truly unhappy. Um, it's it's hard to really tell what it was. I I think he just had he had a very serious bout of mm-hmm. depression, like yeah. for a majority of his life. Yeah. And um, three years after the Seagram's paintings, um, he didn't finish them. Oh wow. He didn't even let them use them. They paid him <laughs> money, and he sent all the money back, and he's like, basically, forget about it. Yeah. Which is so unheard of, because anyone would have died to be in his shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, so three years after that, you, you can see in Rothko's work, um, actually, they, they have um, a booklet of all of his work. When you flip through and you look at them, mm-hmm. and you know, it starts off with these vibrant colors of like red yellow and green and you know it's popping and it's yeah. definitely visually stunning and you can look at it and there's it's hard to tell what you feel by it it's just like a emotion you feel by it it's really mm-hmm. strange because he really put all of his blood sweat and tears into these paintings i mean to the point he'd make his own paint and oh, wow. he would go and scratch up certain things just to add like a flair to it Mm-hmm. Um, if you go and look at his work, you can see each brushstroke yeah. in his work, which is pretty amazing. As he got older, though, the the colors in his paintings started to get darker. Mm-hmm. More like instead of like the vi- red, red vibrant color, it was yeah. like a maroon. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, by the last couple of paintings in his life before he committed suicide, yeah, um, they were black and gray. Oh wow! Completely, all the color was taken out of it. So when they talk mm-hmm. about in that scene, you know, black turns to red. Yeah, that's his biggest fear throughout the whole thing is that his passion's going to die, and so he's going to have to die too. Yeah, I mean that's always a big <laughs> problem within like the creative community. Oh yeah, of just like still having this need to do what I love doing, which mm-hmm. is like, granted, that's the point of this show is I enjoy performing and this is a way to perform without you know seeing my body and seeing my face but all you get are the lovely voices of you know who i bring on and mine obviously but i think one of the things that i found interesting like as ken was you mentioned how like he wasn't a real person he's just kind of this like amalgamation of all of these other people that could have been 
in the process of being around Rothko. And I found that really interesting because one of the really turning points of this scene is when Ken says, do you know anything about me? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, you know, like my name and you know what I look like. Or, you know, at the very least, he didn't even know what I liked, even like music wise. Cause the first thing that happens is he comes in and just says, turn off the goddamn music. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's jazz, man. Like, what do you mean? Like artists love jazz. And I think that's like a stereotypical truth where it's just like sometimes when we're just working, we just might put on jazz or things of that nature where we don't really need to listen to it. But sometimes when we do focus on something, um, it just kind of influences us or makes us focus more than we would if it was just empty noise. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the case for me when I listen to lo-fi. I mean, (laughs) there's not anything specific that I listen to. It's more so just like, okay, I'm about to do some homework. I'm about to scene study. I'm about to flesh out these characters. Instead of getting in my head, let me put on Lo-Fi Girl and just have her in the background. You get the vibes from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, and that's what Mark Rothko was all about was the vibe. It wasn't ever yeah. like a true concept. It was just the vibe he was going for. Yeah, and I think there were so many peaks and heights within these moments of like our scenes between those monologues um, were still like driven and by these monologues because I mean it kind of starts off with a monologue of like turn off this music moves into this is why me as Rothko is like I'm so mad at these things because like I'm putting my you know heart and soul into this and then I see a guy who puts a Campbell's soup can (laughs) get you know millions of dollars and obviously the Campbell's soup can is like one of the most famous paintings because of how just stupid it is. Yeah. It's like absolutely. one of it's it's like, you know what? I wanna make a soup can. Yeah. Um and like sometimes, clearly, I mean we're in twenty twenty three now. I don't know when that painting was made, but it's like many years after the fact. And there are literal art that people just like. Um I mean that's the case for me. Sometimes I just like a dude just in a painting it's like there's nothing it's just like Barney or something like that (laughs) Um, and so it's kind of fun to like having navigated this like Rothko seems like at times he's like this old not old head but like this like I'm gonna stay into what I want to do and not become something that I don't want to become but sometimes obviously in one of the moments where Ken says admit you're a hypocrite yeah because you basically have become the thing that you didn't want to become. Oh, yeah. Not in the sense of your art, but more so in the sense of you as a human being have become this cynical, self-absorbent piece of crap. <laughs> and, you know, that certainly is not good. And I think a, a part of that, too, of Rothko's complex with that, he realizes he's a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. I, I think he fully understands that he's a hypocrite. And I think... With him, you know, when he start talking about like Andy Warhol, people know him better than they know. Oh yeah, Mark Rothko. I mean, you know, there's, that's without a doubt. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's kind of what he was trying to capitalize on, too. You know, if I do this big painting, you know, this big, huge, expensive commission here at the Four Seasons Hotel, you know, I'll be remembered. Mm-hmm. And is it worth it, though? Because what yeah. will you be remembered for? Will you be remembered for being a great artist or being a sellout? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the that's sometimes the struggle of, like, as a creative, we want our art to be our life. Mm-hmm. And when we're given something that makes it our life, is that representation of what we will be provided something that we want to put our name on? Um, obviously, this is more so from a artist painter standpoint but that's the same as you know you as a writer or me as a performer like yes i don't want to get known for me doing a suicide pride and prejudice here <laughs> um several years ago where it's like yes it was a really fun show but like i don't want that to be my legacy oh yeah absolutely. um i want to do something better um and then like you don't want to be the writer who wrote the like 50th version of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) And so like we all have these hopes and dreams and sometimes, you know, it's interesting to see how different things that we might be given, either it be opportunities or money, um, how that might, you know, persuade us to go in a different direction and how certain people that either haven't been in that situation before or are viewing it from the outside of this is the person that you used to be before you got this, how they kind of react to that situation as well. And I feel that this scene that we read and probably throughout the rest of the play, Mm -hmm. it's probably this continuation of like appreciation of the struggle, but also like, the worry that a lot of people have of like legacy and worth, not just in, you know, like we said, putting things out, but like the literal sense of worth with monetary value. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, people, it's, it's hard to get to a point where you become Andy Warhol or Mark Rothko or Mm -hmm. any of these people. And something that always sticks out to me in, in Red is that Rothko never calls him by name. He never yeah. calls Ken Ken. I mm-hmm. mean, he does not have a name. It's kind of almost like he calls him busboy almost. Like, yeah. he kind of just, and he abuses him. He throws paint at him when he didn't get the paint out quick enough when his inspiration hit and all this. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I see kind of parallels to in the industry as well. You know, we, we crave young, like when we're young, to have all of these mentorships. Mm-hmm. And we want to work for someone who has made it. Yeah. But usually, I mean, if you're lucky, you get a great mentor who, you know, will put you in the right places. Or basically, you're just going to be a PA production assistant. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're doing the yeah, crap for stuff. Sure. So. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there's been times in my life over the last, more so the last like year and a half, where it's like, there have been certain people that I have helped where there might've been one thing that I would have asked in return. Like one of them was I wanted a certain letter written to graduate schools and the person just wasn't going to do it for me. Um, because they said they had too much, you know, too much to handle. And I'm like, I perfectly understand. But part of me was just like felt dejected within that moment of just like, there was one thing that I needed you to do to like set the course of my life for the next 
three years possibly. Um, but kind of the thing that has helped me, um, not necessarily like dwell on that, but just in general, is just like we're all part of this journey that we're trying to do and trying to literally survive. Um, yeah. But like, you know, adulthood, it seems, is the act of figuring things out um, as it happens or hoping that you uh, will get everything and anything you want, <laughs> which is more of like a fantastical idea. Um, but my favorite part of this entire scene it is funny because it's the end of it where it seems that it opens the opportunity for Ken to walk into work tomorrow as this person that is finally recognized by Rothko and maybe he'll say hey Ken yeah, (laughs) like finally say his name because Rothko might be like oh I actually should start caring about this person in the sense of like their artistic value. Um, And I think that's really something that is going to be interesting Mm -hmm. going forward. If you want to read it. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I would love to read the whole thing. I was going to tell you what happens at the end of it, but I don't know if you want your listeners to know what happens at the end of it. Yeah. I think the listeners should go ahead and look up the PDF version (laughs) of red and just read through it. Uh, it's it's been a lot of fun uh, to read through this with you. Oh yeah, it's been great. I certainly have enjoyed it, and I thank you for being my first guest. I am so honored, to which be your is first so grade. exciting. First guest. This has been really fun. <laughs> I know it really, really has been. Um, again, thank you, thank Will you. Bradley. <laughs> thank you, Trent Miley, for joining me, and I am glad to have you as my co-guide for today anything you would like to share about your personal life um either things that you're doing or where people could find you anything of that nature yeah um so currently i am moving to uh, savannah georgia here in the summer mm-hmm. and i'm pursuing my master's in dramatic writing oh nice and so um I'm trying to kind of get my work out there. I've written a couple of plays and screenplays and I'm kind of wanting constructive feedback or, mm-hmm. you know, just I need impressions basically on how people feel about my work. Awesome. Um, so um, I'm not going to be able just to put it out there anywhere because <laughs> I don't want anyone to steal it. Yeah, but, of course, of course. Um, but I would love to hear from people um, if they would be interested in hearing anything of mine. Um, my Instagram is Birdly, which is W-H-E-R-L-B-E-R-D-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I got going on right now. Um, yeah, I mean, that's extremely exciting. What school are you going to for your... SCAD. Uh, nice, nice. Yes. SCAD. SCAD is a good place. It's a great place. It's a, it's a great place. Um, one of my favorite TikTokers is from SCAD. Uh, Loic Luberville is like his... He's like a French guy, um, <laughs> but that's his thing. Uh, if you want to know more about me, listeners, <laughs> I have another show on Spotify called Extra Point, X-T-R-A-P-O-I-N-T, with another great friend of mine, Bakari Garvin, and we have an Instagram ourselves as our podcast at Extra Point Pod, X-T-R-A-P-O-I-N-T-P-O-D. And if you want content, 
or knowledge about me, your lovely host. And Will, again, is on Instagram as well. Yes. My professional Instagram is at Riverside underscore readings. And this has been Riverside Readings. I am your host, Trent Miley, and I look forward to the next journey we take together. As Last Pod would say, hail yourself and magoostillations. <laughs>